G'day, mate. 40 here. A historic day. United States Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade. So many angles to look at this story from. Will this surely go down as Donald Trump's most significant accomplishment? Chris Azila, the CNN political analyst, says this will belong in the first story of any uh, comprehensive overview of Donald Trump. He, he put three conservative Supreme Court justices on the court. And uh, remember, Ben Shapiro said, oh, uh, you know, voting for Trump, that's not going to do anything. Uh, it's not going to do anything about the Supreme Court. Well, Trump na- named three conservative justices to the Supreme Court. And who knows what other rulings are coming next. And this ruling could not have happened if just Ruth Bader Ginsburg, okay, the notorious RBG, right, if she hadn't been so selfish, so self-absorbed, so filled with illusions about how important it was that she remained on the court. This could never have happened if she hadn't stuck on the court until she finally died. She could have retired in 2015, given Barack Obama and the Democrats an extra seat on the Supreme Court, but she was too selfish. While William he was a, a centrist judge, and he stepped down. Donald Trump coaxed him, essentially flattered him into stepping down. And as a result, you have this just uh, amazing turn of events. So, I mean, so many amazing tweets today. One philosopher tells me, science tells us that the fetus feels excruciating pain when it is killed in this way. That's enough for me. The restrictions that are being imposed in the states that have them are similar to Europe. We are the outlier or were. In any case, this is a question for democracy. People should have input on abortion policy. So remember when democracy was under threat and that was the number one news story. Now it's our rights are under threat. So these rights and democracy are at odds, all right, to say that abortion should not be a matter for democratic choice, right? You're saying that there are more important things than democracy. So if you're pro-democracy, you got to be pro this ruling because this ruling takes the legality of abortion out of the courts and restores it to the people. And so... Clarence Thomas, can you hear me? In my exile, I am powerless to protect the Republic, but I have given you the tools to repair its foundations in my absence. Yes, Mr. President, I know what must be done. Uh, Dave Smith comic says, Insurrection is cool again in three, two, one. So democratic cities where abortions will be easy and plentiful, they're going to be burning down tonight. So the great irony is that tonight democratic cities will be burned down by Democrats in democratic states where abortion will still be legal. And I also notice uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, lots of urbane right-wingers are politely holding their tongues today. And so remember remember this classic from Ben Shapiro. No, Trump isn't going to save the U.S. Supreme Court. Well... Didn't, didn't exactly uh, work out that way. How can you not love this if you're a conservative? So I wonder what Tucker Carlson has to say.
evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. After nearly 50 years, the single shoddiest, most destructive Supreme Court decision in American history has finally been struck down. Roe v. Wade was overturned this morning by a 6-3 majority. Here's how Fox News reported it at 10:11 a.m. The decision is out. It's been issued by Justice Alito and Roe v. Wade, according to our reports from the U.S. Supreme Court and our own Shannon Bream, is that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and the question of abortion has been returned to the states. So pandemonium ensued immediately in the headline of the Babylon Bee. Democrats paused January 6th hearing to call for insurrection. And that's basically true. But from a legal perspective, which is what matters, there's nothing surprising about today's decision. It was only a matter of time before Roe v. Wade was overturned. That's been obvious for decades. Even Democrats once acknowledged it. Roe was one of those decisions you never heard anyone defend on its own terms. Lots of people want legal abortion, but no one's ever explained how exactly the Constitution guarantees that. Roe was a political document. It was not a legal opinion. And for that reason, its existence degraded and undermined the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, one of our country's central institutions. It was poison. Now, the purpose of the Supreme Court is simple. It's to determine whether the laws that politicians pass are consistent with the United States Constitution. That's it. That's all the Supreme Court does. What the Supreme Court does not do, what it cannot do and should never do, is make laws. And it should never do that because a court making laws would be, by definition, anti-democratic. None of the nine Supreme Court justices has been elected by anyone. All of them have lifetime appointments. If you cared about democracy and wanted democracy to continue, you would demand that all laws in the United States be passed by elected legislatures. Again, no matter how you feel about abortion or any other specific issue. In a democracy, voters have the final word on how they are governed. That's what democracy is. Now, after nearly half a century, voters have had their rights restored on the question of abortion. If they like abortion, they can vote to legalize abortion. If they don't like abortion, they can vote to ban abortion. That's not shocking. That is how our system is supposed to work, not being a monarchy and all. So what's the argument against this? Well, there isn't one, really. And we know that for certain from the dissent in today's Supreme Court ruling. The three justices who objected don't even bother to make a legal argument in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade. Instead, they throw an embarrassing little tantrum. At one point, Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor warn that the highly diabolical Clarence Thomas actually plans to ban interracial marriage. Clarence Thomas against interracial marriage. And then, of course, there's lots of huffing about something called bodily autonomy, which actually we're strongly in favor of, though it's not clear how that applies to abortion, which affects two bodies. But in any case, these same bodily autonomy people are the very same justices who just voted to uphold mandatory vaccinations for millions of Americans, thus violating their bodily autonomy. So much for that argument. Not that it stopped Justin Trudeau of Canada, where abortions are legal till the moment of birth. Today, Trudeau wrote this, quote, the news coming out of the United States is horrific. No government, politician, or man should tell a woman what she can or cannot do with her body. Suddenly, women are the only ones who get pregnant, you'll notice. Canada is a country, by the way, under the leadership of Justin Trudeau, that prevented unvaccinated citizens from traveling within their own country. They had mandatory vaccinations. 
Justin Trudeau was perfectly happy to tell the women of Canada what to put in their own body. So you're beginning to see why precisely zero people throwing tantrums today have bothered to explain the law or the principles that supposedly underlie Roe v. Wade. Not one of them. Instead, they're yelling, as they always do, suspending the January 6th hearings to start an insurrection. And that would, of course, include Joe Biden. Here he is. It was three justices named by one president, Donald Trump, named by one president, Donald Trump, were the core of today's decision to upend the scales of justice and eliminate a fundamental right for women in this country. Make no mistake, this decision is a culmination of a deliberate effort over decades to upset balance of our law. It's a realization of an extreme ideology and a tragic error by the Supreme Court, in my view. Notice that it's abortion that is the red line for them. Abortion of all the issues. Why is that so important to them? It's obvious why it's so important to America's corporations, almost all of whom immediately weighed in to say, we'll fly you to get an abortion at the state of your choice. Why? Well, of course. Employees without families are loyal to the company. And of course, it's much cheaper to pay for an abortion than it is to pay for maternity leave or an extra name on the insurance policy. So it's all about the money for corporate America. It always is. Families are bad for big corporations. Therefore, they're against families. But what's the president talking about exactly? What's this extreme ideology? Pro-baby? That's extreme ideology that, quote, upsets the balance of our law. What is Joe Biden talking about? This particular ruling dramatically reduces the power of unelected judges to dictate the details of the lives of millions of Americans and returns that power to voters. Voters get to decide how they want to live. That's an extreme ideology that upsets the balance of power somehow. We thought that was the whole premise of our system. We thought that was democracy. And yet the very people who've been lecturing us for years about democracy, it's the end of democracy, are horrified by the return of democracy. They're telling us the legitimacy of our institutions is at risk. And yet they cannot allow voters to have a say in how they live. What does that tell you? It tells you they care about power, not popular support. They're afraid to put their ideas to the test of a vote. And that's why the Justice Department, which no longer dispenses justice, instead it works on behalf of the Democratic Party, allowed thugs to gather outside the homes of Supreme Court justices for the last several weeks in violation of federal law in an effort to intimidate them into not doing what they did today. And that's why today you saw several elected members of Congress call for insurrection. That would include Sandy Cortez of Westchester. That would include, as always, Maxine Waters of Los Angeles. This is not the first riot she's called for. She once again threatened violence against Supreme Court justices because they came down with an opinion she doesn't agree with. And then she promised to defy the court's ruling. How's this for defending our institutions? Watch. You see this turnout here? You ain't seen nothing yet. Women are going to control their bodies no matter how they try and stop us. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. Women will be in control of their bodies. And if they think black women are intimidated or afraid, they got another thought coming. To hell with the Supreme Court. Roberta Mugabe there will defy them. Really? 
You will defy our core institution after sending people to prison for questioning the last election. Is that what you're saying? Don't lecture us ever again about the sanctity of our institutions, about our norms, because you clearly don't care about them at all. What you care about is power. Candace Owens has been watching all of this, including the threats against the Supreme Court very closely. She's the founder uh, of the charity uh, Blexit, and uh, we're happy to have her join uh, us tonight. No, um, no, no, so Candace, no, no, it's, it's no, kind of- No, sorry, sorry, no. I'm not gonna listen to Candace Owens. So all, all this Democratic talk about insurrection, it, it makes me think that the January 6th investigations are partisan, right? I'm on board with investigating January 6th. I am totally on board. I don't even care if it's partisan, right? I don't care even if it's, it's bad for my team. I, I want January 6th investigated. Now, I also want the Summer of George investigated. I want Democratic riots in Wisconsin to, aimed at shutting down the state legislature. I want them investigated too. And if Biden voters get out of control tonight and, and wreak havoc, I, I want that investigated too. I, I don't like unlawful, disruptive, destructive behavior, whether it's coming from my team or, or the other team. But it, it's clearly so partisan, the January 6th hearings, that it's understandable that they're unlikely to have much of an effect on r regular Americans. So when, when it comes to fighting back against an abortion ruling, then insurrection is great. So when it comes to fighting white power, then insurrection is great. When it comes to fighting Republicans or putative police brutality, then, then insurrection is, is a good thing. I mean, I'm starting to question whether the Democrats would be nearly as enthused about January 6th type hearings if it was their team that was doing the bad stuff. All right. What, what, whatever power these hearings might have had for people in the middle. And part of me is in the middle, right? Part of me is, you know, quite right wing, but part of me is in the middle. I welcome a January 6th investigation. I, I welcome finding out you know, what what bad things were done by people on the right, including Donald Trump. I believe that January 6th absolutely tarnished uh, Donald Trump and uh, those of his supporters who either participated in January 6th or said it was a good idea, laid the, the intellectual or practical groundwork for, for January 6th. Yeah, I would like to see them investigated just as I would for any other law-breaking, destructive activity. But you just don't get the sense that uh, Democrats are particularly the party of law and order. Now, Republicans, right, Republicans were the party of law and order, and overwhelmingly Republicans still are the party of law and order. Republicans are the ones who are, generally speaking, most uh, supportive of the police. But watching the cities burn tonight, yeah, you love death, I love life. You want to defecate on our democracy. Yeah, I, I am always impeccably dressed. I'm not like Tucker Carlson dressing down for this show tonight. He, he's, not, he's not wearing a, a tie tonight. So I have so many different perspectives on abortion. One is I think it's immoral. I think it is killing. It is killing a life. Now, I don't think it's the same as killing like a fully functional 18-year-old 
All right. I, I don't think it's like that, but I, I generally align with the views of Orthodox Judaism, which holds that abortion absolutely killing, whether or not it measures up to the full measure of, of murder of uh, a sentient, you know, walking, talking human being. Uh, I don't think most rabbis w would go that far, but certainly some would. So I think abortion's immoral for my, my knowledge, being responsible for an abortion know anything about getting a woman pregnant or contributing to an abortion. So one thing about abortion is that I would suspect that most women who want to have an abortion are not very smart and not very self-disciplined, don't tend to make very good judgments, all right? And so do we really want to bring into the world more people like that? So my my practical, pragmatic views on abortion— Right? I, I gave the moral view, but that's not the be-all and end-all perspective. My pragmatic view on abortion is that I welcome people coming into this country who are likely to contribute to this country. So in pragmatic terms, my perspective on abortion is the same as my perspective on immigration. Right? If we need certain people, right, people who are going to be a good fit for this country, people who are likely to contribute to this country, people who are likely to raise social cohesion, social trust, right? If, if people are going to make this country a better place, then I welcome those people, right? I don't want people coming into this country either through birth or through immigration who are likely to damage this country. And, and wouldn't it be great? I mean, wouldn't it just be amazing if, if somehow... Uh, people were color-coded so that you could just like tell at a glance whether or not they were going to be a good fit for this country. But obviously, reality is far more complicated than that. But I'm just curious, are there any signposts or are there, there anything that we have that might, might be a useful predictor whether someone or was more likely to contribute to society as, say, takeaway. So wouldn't it be awesome, for example, if there were statistics about various groups, say Orthodox Jews, Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, uh, homosexuals in Los Angeles, uh, Latino, Mexican-Americans, uh, Chinese-Americans, Japanese-Americans, uh, Polish-Americans. Like, wouldn't it be great to have detailed statistics about which groups tend to pay more in taxes than they take out in government services? Wouldn't it be awesome to have statistics about crime? And I mean, I would certainly want to know, like, which group, say, commits the most murders or commits the most uh, breaking and entering or, uh, like, is there, a, say, a group that does disproportionate amount of raping and, and pillaging and uh, you know, personal crimes, property crimes? Like, if we could only have that kind of statistical evidence... All right. I mean, what what about Southern Baptists? Break it down by religion or Unitarians or Anglicans or Presbyterians. Like, wouldn't it be awesome to have crime statistics and taxation statistics and social welfare recipient statistics so that we could figure out which groups are contributing more to our society and which groups are degrading more? to our society. So I, I suspect even though different groups have different gifts and uh, different groups are composed of a whole panoply of different people, I suspect that 
if we could only get some sort of statistical analysis, I mean, do academics do this? I mean, it, it seems like something that, that nerdy guys would, would really be into. It'd be awesome to see which groups contribute to our society, say low rates of crime, they pay in disproportionate amount of taxes, and they don't take nearly as much in government services, then I would want more of those groups in my country, right? My, my philosophy is give me more givers rather than takers. So, so in case there are any academics who are watching this show and they, they want to make a genuine contribution to Western civilization, maybe do a statistical analysis of various groups. You can group people by ideology. You can group people by religion. You can group people by ethnicity. I mean, I don't see race, so I, I, I just believe in radical love and inclusion and truth. So just give us the truth so that we can know about which groups are more likely to contribute to society, which groups are more likely to degrade it. Let's make it objective. Let's make it scientific. Uh, let's just make it simple and, and truthful so we can just put the evidence out there. And that way we can make better decisions about all sorts of public policy so that we can encourage more of the good in people, discourage more of the bad. For example, Donald Trump says, you know, why do we need to take people from shithole countries? Well, maybe statistical evidence shows that people from Haiti overwhelmingly contribute to this country. All right. So Haiti looks like a hellhole. But maybe if we look at the evidence, maybe when they come to this country, maybe they have really low levels of AIDS and monkeypox. Maybe they they commit very low levels of crime. Maybe they just contribute an enormous amount to our tax base. Maybe they are leading innovations in rocket science and entrepreneurship and uh, medical science and scholarship into Shakespeare. So wouldn't it be nice to get this kind of evidence? And uh, like Guatemala seems like a pretty, pretty lousy place to live. But maybe Guatemalan Americans are just doing amazing work for us. Maybe they are contributing far more in tax base than they take out in social welfare. Maybe Syrians, all right? Maybe, maybe our immigrants from Syria or Afghanistan or Iran or, or Iraq or, or Saudi Arabia, maybe they're making America great again. So let's, let's do a comprehensive statistical analysis to see which groups we would benefit from having more of in this country and then which groups maybe we don't want to take in uh, more because we've had some experience with that group and it just hasn't worked out so well and so i've been fired from jobs because i'm not always a great fit for, for every job i've had clients who've fired me right i've had wonderful earning opportunities that have disappeared because my personality was not a good fit. My skills were not a good fit. So I, I, for example, I don't like a boss or a client who's just constantly breathing on my neck and who wants me to copy on them on every single thing I, I do. I, I don't like that kind of intrusion. So I'm not a good fit for every job and, and for every client. So I don't want to watch my words. I, I don't want to be you know, super sensitive in case I, I say something that might might offend a client. And so if, if a client fires me or a boss fires me or a contract is, is revoked, that that's probably the best thing. I, I'm not a good fit for that situation. And so that doesn't mean I'm bad. So if we decide, hey, we want to reduce the number of immigrants that we get from this area or 
this group here is proving to be a major drain on our society so this group really needs to step up then it's not personal it's not saying that you're a bad person or your country's a bad person it's just saying that in this particular situation maybe maybe we need uh, fewer of you and maybe you need some privileges revoked because you just don't have enough law-abiding citizens who are willing to vouch for you so i mean i would be fine with people having to get a license before they give birth they should, people should have to have, say, 10 law-abiding citizens vouch that you're a good person and you're most likely to give birth to good, good babies who will grow up to be contributing members of society. So this free-to-choose rhetoric gets me because all the people who proclaim how important that it is that uh, women should be free to choose abortions, they at the same time are adamant that you don't get freedom to choose who you employ. Right? You're not allowed to discriminate on sexual orientation or whether or not uh, the, the prospective employee, say, aligns with your company culture or you're not allowed to discriminate on, on you know, a whole bunch of, of bases. So they want to restrict your freedom to choose who you employ. They want to restrict your freedom who you choose to rent to. They want to restrict your freedom who you sell to. They effectively want to restrict your freedom of association. They want to restrict your ability to develop cohesive, coherent, high-trust societies and, and communities. But when it comes to abortion, oh, then we just need more and more freedom. Right? They want to restrict your freedom whether or not to have a vaccine or whether or not to wear a face mask or whether or not to go to work or, or whether or not to you know, walk more than, say, five miles during, during an epidemic from your home. So I was looking at the LA Times. It says this ruling marks the most significant curtailing of an established constitutional right in the court's history. Well, yeah, I, I can see how you would you would make that analysis. And uh, Tucker is interviewing Dana Perino. So no, I don't really care what uh, Dana Perino has to say, and I don't really care what George Hawley. I don't really care what. What various politicians have to say. So I'm going to pass on Candace Owens and uh, Dana Prino's analysis. But, okay, I can understand why the news media is framing this as the most significant curtailing of an established constitutional right in the Supreme Court's history. But at the same time, as it's taking away, say, that right to have, you know, unlimited abortion in, in all 50 states. It's also increasing other rights, such as democracy. Remember, our democracy is under threat. Well, now we have more democracy. People get to vote for representatives who get to make laws about whether or not there's abortion, about whether or not there should be same-sex marriage. So th this mainstream media talk about rights, it's, it's always done with this modern liberal conception that all you can ever do is increase rights, increase freedoms, and it never comes at a price to anyone else. Well, if I'm living on an island, or let's say there are 200 species on an island, and you introduce an additional 50 species to that island, a lot of those existing species are going to die out. Let's say I come to your garden, and I plant a big eucalyptus tree and by law, you're not allowed to damage the eucalyptus tree that I plant in your garden. So what may very well happen is that the eucalyptus tree I plant in your garden will kill off all the other plants you have in your garden. It will become a massive hazard because eucalyptus trees are filled with oil and they explode 
and, and become a dangerous fire hazard, right? The eucalyptus tree may suck up a huge amount of water, which you may wish to use for other things. So if, if I said, look, you can't do anything about this eucalyptus tree because eucalyptus trees have rights and you can't take away any rights from eucalypti. And just because eucalypti have rights, it doesn't reduce rights for anyone else. Well, it, it does. It's going to wipe out the ability of all the other plants underneath it from surviving. And it's going to add a fire hazard. So you can't increase rights for, for certain activities or certain groups without simultaneously reducing rights from other people. And uh, a lot of interesting comments from, from friends today. And so one friend says, I'd argue that the, the COVID vaccine spectacle, the, the cronyism, the, the Fauci cover-ups, his, his prevarications really opened the door for this decision. Science is pulled away from neoliberal hegemony. So a conservative can see with his own two eyes a CAT scan image of a fetus, and he believes his own lying eyes over Dr. Fauci. Yeah, so I think the blanket protecting science and expertise was uh, ripped away for many people during COVID. And that's not my perspective, because I believe that, generally speaking, the elites and uh, our governments did pretty well during COVID. But I think that it is what happened for many people, that the the state has been revealed, right? Many things that have been hidden, like the hidden power of elites and of government and of, of science have been revealed during this lockdown. And a lot of people don't particularly like what they see. Okay, let's get a little more here from When Tucker. you protest against the Supreme Court, what are you really protesting against? We well, are attempting to intimidate them. Thousands of people, as you said, are marching in New York City. 4,500 people are heading to Chuck Schumer's office. Jeremy Lefredo works for Rebel News. He is there tonight. We thought we'd check in with him. Jeremy, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me, Tucker. What? Of course. What do you see? What's happening there? There are thousands of people here. I've seen chants and signs calling for the abolition of the Supreme Court, calling for the end of white supremacy. And I've been seeing signs that are also calling for... Um, the forced vasectomy of men as opposed to abortion for women. So it's, it's really wild here. It, it, I mean, who, these people seem pretty organized. I mean, it's, it seems like these signs must have, some of these signs and stickers and the coordinates, I mean, it, it seems like they were ready for this before it happened. Of course. Yeah, I mean, the signs were mass produced somehow um, at a moment's notice. Everyone's holding the same signs. Um, I don't know where they got them. Uh, I've asked a few people. They said, you know, someone's handing them out. Um, I don't know who's behind it, who's behind the signs. And there's even some uh, posters going around that say, you know, tonight is a night to riot uh, verbatim. So, you know, who knows what, what's to come for the rest of the night. So if they're calling for the elimination of the United States Supreme Court, the forced sterilization of men and rioting, then this is a dangerous extremist movement. I don't know how else an honest person would describe it. Am I missing something? Yeah, of course. And, and it's also important to highlight these are the same exact people that stood by and watched as thousands and thousands of New Yorkers and thousands of women in New York were um, fired from their jobs for not um, submitting right. to the vaccine mandates. So they are pro-choice um, 
and pro-bodily autonomy in one area, and of course they're not pro-choice or bodily autonomy in the other area. Yeah, and they hate democracy. The idea of voters being able to decide how they're governed uh, is the worst possible outcome they can imagine. Jeremy, I appreciate your covering this force tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. So there are apparently protests that may turn into riots across the country tonight. There's a big one outside the Supreme Court at this hour. Julio Rosas is there for us. He's senior editor at Town Hall. He's the author of the book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America, which he covered extensively. He joins us right now. Julio, what do you see at the court? Uh, well, Tucker, I've been outside the Supreme Court for most of the day, and uh, as the night has worn on, I mean, thousands of people have, have shown up in, in opposition of the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, when the decision was announced, there were some tears uh, from the pro-abortion pro crowd. Uh, they chanted that the court was illegitimate, and there have just been more and more people showing up uh, as time has gone on. I can say, in terms of the D.C. being prepared for any potential unrest, the Metropolitan Police Department has canceled days off for officers. They're going to be on 12-hour shifts so that they can be on standby for full mobilization should they be needed. Uh, there has been a heavy police presence from both Capitol Police, Supreme Court Police, and uh, along with MPD. So, uh, you know, oftentimes... Okay, we'll keep an eye on the news to see if anything shocking happens. Let's get let's get some perspective here from... Basically, wisecracking, like I said, breaking Joseph the fourth Cotter. call and having as much fun with it as possible. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the... the... The analogy was, or the, the comparison was that he obviously killed his wife. Like, he's, he's obviously told everyone he killed his wife. But talking about he, he, just, he can't come out and be like, oh, everybody, by the way, I did do it. You know, like, Fuentes is like kind of the same thing. It's like, I hang out with gay people. I watch gay porn. <laughs> women are gay. Don't worry, I'm super manly. Like, it's, again, it just doesn't make any sense. I, it, the Fuentes thing is also he started like a cult among his followers where he made them pledge allegiance to him, uh, saying some things I can't repeat here, but he actually did make them pledge allegiance to him. Uh, and he also, I believe, has compared himself to God and voiced admiration for Stalin. I think Fuentes probably is just a guy who has given up his desire to go mainstream, to take his movement mainstream. He seems to have had his bridges burned, including from Paul Gosar. Uh, and I, I think that Fuentes at this point is just basically on an island and he's trying to amass as loyal as possible the following. And at some point he's going to burn out or he'll get arrested for something. Uh, and it's, it's, I think that's where he is, basically. Yeah, I mean, again, I would think that there would be a benefit to him at this point to just come out and be like, look, I, I like Dick. It's just the way that it is. And, and we're going to move on from this, like, because you think my political views are still good. So, like, the fact that, that, that I like men shouldn't matter so much. And don't worry, I'm not going to, like, unless it's by accident, obviously, I'm not going to shove it in anyone's face. But, you know, like, it's it, you would just think that it would be something that, that he would do at this point because of how silly it sounds that yeah. he, he denies it, you know? Why do you suppose he is still denying this? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I don't have 100% proof that, that he is uh, homosexual, even though, I mean, come on, really. But uh, why do you suppose he's keeping up this facade? What's the point? I, I, I Again, I don't know. Because, I mean, it, it, would, it would be like someone hiding, like, their religion, like like someone doesn't want to be acknowledged as being Jewish, so they wear a crucifix <laughs> and all that. But but then, like, you know, the, the camera stays on for an extra five minutes, and they're putting on a yarmulke and, like, you know, like eating to filter fish and like you're doing whatever, like, like, and it comes to the point where you're like, listen, if you're not Jewish, you might as well be because of the way you act. And it's like, no, no, I'm not Jewish. In fact, wearing a yarmulke is super Catholic. You know, it's like, well, no, like, why, why aren't you just like, okay, just tell people what does it matter? You know, it's, it's not like he's married and he's afraid that his wife might find out and divorce him or anything like that. Like he doesn't even, he's not even dating. So he, he doesn't even have like a, a female he's gone on a date with. He hasn't been to a matchmaker or nothing. And at this point, I don't think there's anyone that legitimately thinks Okay, so let's learn some German. Gesinnungsethik. Come on. 
Gesinnungsethik. Gesinnungsethik. Okay, this means ultimate end. So it refers to the work of Max Weber. It's a moral philosophy. And it says that individuals act in a faithful rather than a rational manner. So I noticed many smart college-educated people think that they rationally, dispassionately choose their morality. But uh, according to Weber, ethically-oriented conduct must be guided by one of two fundamentally differing and irreconcilably opposed maxims. So conduct can be oriented to an ethic of ultimate ends or to an ethic of responsibility. Right? So ultimate ends is you do what you ultimately think is right, but in an in that that German word Gesinnungsethik. That's where you simply try to stay faithful. Right? No matter the results. All right, you try to stay stay faithful. So if you're an Orthodox Jew, you just try to stay faithful to Torah. If you're a Christian, you try to stay faithful to Jesus. And so for for many people, issues like abortion, they're not something that, that's rationally thought through. It's something that's felt through. And so they, they try to stay faithful to their ultimate source of morality, which often comes from their feelings or from their allegiances. Let's play from here. Okay. Straight white guy, destitute, suffering, and then dead. One of the ways that the far has been able to grow online the is hazard. that they've been able to post their ideologies, their videos, their thinking. So shut it down. Social shut networks, it down. Like YouTube, like Facebook. But YouTube in particular is a place anyway, that has kind yeah, of allowed for alternative. YouTube. Okay, and by the way, these clips it's that they show, it's like, well, he's, he's a communist he's now. Out of the picture. So they're, they're showing stuff that's literally six, seven years old, and this just came. Okay, talking about that new Netflix series I was discussing on Sunday out three weeks ago they're still in seville for mm -hmm. crying out loud mm -hmm. so they worked on this for years they're using clips mostly from like of me from, borrowed from right wing hey, watch you <laughs> know and daily beast they even blur out the logo to not promote us so people can't go look like red ice tv right and they pretend like we're still on youtube mm -hmm. by putting putting uh, my clip like in the youtube frame when we're not on youtube anymore mm -hmm. it's just retarded anyway here's another one <clears throat> yeah here's another uh, uh coat turner here or turning where the the wind blows right uh liberal at this point right richard uh joe biden spencer vaxxed fully vaxxed all right so uh was there another portion that i want to play yeah there's, there's, it's coming up right here uh oh it's coming two clips of me okay. all right nice okay let's i'm going to say what all you think and know to be true it can never ever ever be too white most Amen. states like oregon and minnesota were great places to live until diversity was forced in our communities as an act of hate a lot of the let me go back there for a second because i want to show uh, this is how how i mean it's fine right this is what they do it's but but, but kind of like how petty and uh what's the word i'm looking for like, no not vindictive this is obviously these are these are enemies right but People uh, say, i love this video stop race mixing Ooh. <clears throat> uh, it's funny because this is like, yeah, so YouTube was removed about 2019, right? And then send, and that this is two years ago, right? It says here, which means that these screenshots, if they're, it could even be that the, I, I try to find, you know, an archived version of this and like, is it actually up there? This is what was from this video, right? I think it was, right? Was yeah. It? And this one, this is all uh, censored, uh, by the way, the, the source here. But unfortunately, they don't save the comments, right? So I went to Wayback Machine and just see, like, oh, is it, are they actually using the comments? I couldn't find anything. But the point is, they're sitting on these things for, as you said, six years, five, six <laughs> years of screenshots. Uh, and despite that, it's so d poorly produced and boring and outdated, and no one even used the terms they're using anymore. They're going to explain what red pilling is to the, to the Netflix. <laughs> they have this like Antifa like, who's all masked <laughs> up, like he needs to protect himself, right? Explain like, to us. Think about this with the, the, the that means that they're. I mean, either they fake these comments, which is, I don't care. It's fine. Well, it's they're like, talking about, okay, yeah. let us video stop a race mixing. Well, that would have been another video. I, I did videos on, a video Prentice on that. that they, I'm surprised they didn't you. show that. 
too you know. much mixing and too much immigration. Yeah. So anyway, so they could they could be real. They could be fake. I mean, obviously that's not the point either. It doesn't really matter, right? I'm like some of the <laughs> comments are like, yeah. So they go like, to ooh, uh, someone doesn't believe in the out of Africa theory. Ooh. <laughs> they, they go to. I remember this uh, clearly too. This is like Daily Beast. It's early on. We're like they were so buttered Alex about that. Jones video. is banned. Why are why Red Eyes not banned? And it, the point is, there's a couple of sources. There, there's like it's Media Matters, right? It's Right Wing Watch. Uh, but it could be you know obviously ADLS busy in the backdrop of that too, kind of feeding these outlets, right? Uh, possible, as I said, the Daily Beast. That's the source, right? Or Huff Post or something comparable to that kind of thing, right? Um, but that means that they're. They're so lazy that they don't even do the they research. They can't even find original They just things go that they think and rehash dummy. and take, like, screenshots that other already... Ex- okay, this link was a total waste. I don't know who, who gave it to me, but who cares how lazy or not the, the Netflix show is? So that link was an absolute loser. Okay, let's get a little bit more here from Tucker Carlson. So Nancy Pelosi, depending on the day, spends a lot of time throwing her Christianity in your face. It's, of course, false. She's in no sense a Christian. And after today's Supreme Court decision, Pelosi looked like she was about to pass out. She was that upset. She said the Supreme Court of the United States had, quote, eviscerated human rights. Here's part of it. There's no point in saying good morning, because it certainly is not one. This morning, the radical Supreme Court is eviscerating America. Wow. So there's no point in being civil. So there's no point in, in following the, the etiquette of civilization when, when you don't like some uh, result from the Supreme Court. I mean, society would collapse if everybody took Nancy Pelosi's attitude. Americans' rights and endangering their health and safety because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell... And the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, American women today have less freedom than their mothers. With Roe and their attempt to destroy it, radical Republicans are charging ahead with their crusade to criminalize health freedom. What this means to women is such an insult. It's a slap in the face to women. Health freedom? I mean, this is the woman who wants vaccine mandates. I mean, health freedom, what a bizarre way to to phrase abortion discussion. You always hear abortion advocates saying, oh, abortion should just be something between a woman and a doctor. A doctor doesn't have any particular moral wisdom or necessarily any psychological wisdom. They can do procedures and they can give you pills, but they're, they're just a technician. All right, to, to say that, that a serious moral, social, psychological decision should just be between you and a mechanic. Right? That, that's bizarre. A doctor is a mechanic. He, he doesn't necessarily, ipso facto, by being a doctor, have any skills be, beyond that. What, what is a doctor going to teach you about abortion? 99.9% of abortions are not health-related. They're not done because the mother's life is at risk. Abortions are overwhelmingly an immoral killing of life because it's inconvenient, right? Someone is sloppy and careless and makes bad decisions, and they want to snuff out a life because it's inconvenient to them. Such Orwellian language, like health freedom. Oh, they took her sacrament away. Health freedom, really? That's the same Nancy Pelosi who was forcing American women to take an experimental vaccine that hurt an awful lot of them 
And Nancy Pelosi applauded as their lives were destroyed, as they were fired from their jobs because they wouldn't take that experimental drug. And there she is complaining about the results of a Democratic election. Really? Donald Trump ran for president. Whether you liked him or not, he said out loud, I will appoint conservative judges to the court who will overturn Roe v. Wade. People voted for him. He won. He did that. It happened. So that does seem like democracy in action. But democracy doesn't stop there. We've got another election coming up. It's the midterm. And you have to wonder what effect, if any, today's ruling will have on those races. Dana Prino follows oh, no, this up very no, carefully. No, 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 She's no. co-anchor of America's News. No, <laughs> we don't care what... Uh... Dana Perino has to say. All right, Laponius notes in the chat. So chopping up babies and vacuuming them out is not radical, but letting the baby develop and uh, ha have a chance at life. Now that is extremely radical. So Kenneth Brown says we are getting overly excited about statistics regarding crime and immigration. We should just uh, calm down. And there are rapes and there are tragedies of all kinds happening all around the country, all around the world, all the time. Every hour, every minute, every second, there's a tragedy. And if it's plastered all over the news, a la George Floyd or the, the Pulse nightclub or the various Tucson shootings or the Sandy Hook or whatever it is, the media wants to take one of these tragedies and for a particular reason, puff it up and make it important and plaster it on the screen. And because we're all addicted to these screens, we look and we say, wow, this is really important. And it creates this intersubjective consensus that we say, oh, I guess this is the important thing. We have to comment on it. We have to talk about it. The war in Russia, the, the health crisis, whatever it is. At the end of the day, none of these things have inherent relative value over one another. None of these things are inherently more important than one another on some kind of statistical real basis in my life, in your life. Yeah, I would say that immigration and crime has a big effect on your life, all right? So the biggest effects on, of crime, the most dispersed effects are not on the specific victims, but they're on everyone else who has to live a constricted life. When I went back to Australia, where, where crime is not an issue, and I could just walk around freely, and everyone could just walk around freely and live their life, you get a much more visceral sense of the enormous toll that crime takes on us. <clears throat> and uh, cr crime and, and violent crime is not evenly distributed. Some groups commit a whole ton more of it than others. You know, mass immigration, the statistical effect of mass immigration, the statistical effect of black and white crime, the statistical effect of these different ideologies and whatever you want to call them, social trends. We're not evaluating these based on real lived experience we're evaluating these based on a right because nobody's ever been mugged nobody has curtailed their life due to concerns about crime nobody knows anyone who's been mugged or, or a victim of violent crime nobody knows anyone who's had to spend money to try to increase their odds of uh, staying safe in a dangerous world mythological film a plot a narrative that is given to us by a mass media, whether that's a mass media from CNN, whether that's from Alex Jones, we're getting some kind of narrative from someone outside ourselves, but we're not serving our own interests. When we get caught up in these narratives and their resultant ideologies, we are getting caught up. Yeah, obviously you can become overly concerned about things in the news that you can have no influence over. On the other hand, obviously politics matters you just saw how politics matters. Roe v. Wade was just overturned. So how about a moderate approach, right? 
paying a moderate amount of attention to the news, but not allowing it to turn your life into a toxic sewer, right? Noticing reality and enjoying the challenge of trying to understand the world around you. It seems to be a laudable activity. In someone's game, someone's interest is to make us stressed out, frightened, panicked, to believe that there is a constant crisis going on and that we need to do something about that because Edward Bernays and all the psychologists following Freud discovered that if you want to impel people to action, to donate, to give likes and clicks and care about what you have to say, you put in front of them a crisis. And so you say, oh, there's a, there's a crisis. There's a crisis. And I would agree there are many crises going on. But to objectively assess which of those we have the power to do something about and create strategies for how we're going to do something about them, we cannot be informed by the media. We have to understand that all of these major ideologies devolve from the media. Even the ones who claim to hate the media as reactionaries, they're simply taking a mirror, mirror image of the media. If the media says, you know, toxins in the water are bad, then I guess they're good now. You know, uh, you can't simply take whatever crisis is being held up by the media as, uh, you know, if there is a Muslim terrorist attack, the response should not be, oh, okay, well, I guess that doesn't exist or that's a hoax or that's staged or I guess. Okay, thanks, Ken. So let's let's uh, reflect a little bit, go go a little deeper. I think that uh, COVID has helped many people see uh, the, the naked state, right? Many many of the mythologies that we had about the world around us were shattered due to COVID, and. Let's, let's go a little deeper on abortion. This is a topic that I've covered twice. Just want to hit the highlights once again. The fight over abortion is not over abortion. It is a proxy for race and race-related concerns. So on the one hand, you have a side that believes that traditional ways of organizing human life are best, and traditional ways meaning that you should get to choose who belongs or does not belong to your community. And then on the other side, the liberal left-wing side, it holds that you know, innovative, experimental ways of organizing human life and, and families and, and love and, and procreation that, that uh, we should be more open and innovative. So that's, that's one overview of what, what's going on. So why did we develop this passionate anti-abortion movement? Now, in history, there is not a sustained philosophical position on the evils or the virtues of abortion. So, with regard to an alleged sin like racism, you don't find any allegations of this putative sin of racism uh, prior to really the 1930s, and it doesn't become widespread until the 1960s. So, the, the sin of racism was essentially invented in the 1960s. But when you go, because the great religious leaders and the great moral philosophers, they never talked about don't be racist. Right? There aren't any gadolim, great Orthodox rabbis who've written books saying don't be racist. Right? The, the whole topic of, of racism is absent from our leading scriptures and our leading works of moral philosophy. Now, abortion has not occupied center stage in works of, of moral philosophy, nor of religious scripture. It is mentioned on occasion, but there's not, there's not a, a comprehensive and solid body of, of moral thought that, that falls down very strongly 
on on either side of the abortion issue. So abortion became a hot button issue in the United States, not because of Roe v. Wade. In the immediate aftermath of Roe v. Wade, uh, anti-abortion was not a passionate issue. Anti-abortion became a passionate issue because it was constructed as such by leaders in the conservative movement because it was useful. Right, so leaders of the conservative movement in the late 1970s, so Richard Vigory, Paul Weirich, Phyllis Schlafly, Jerry Forwell, were trying to build a base. They were trying to develop more power, and they were trying to oppose the civil rights movement. So they settled on a concerted effort to politicize abortion because it dodges the race issue explicitly, and it offers an opportunity to unify conservative Catholics and evangelical. So... The anti-abortion movement has been remarkably successful at convincing people that the positions that individuals take on abortion always follow in some logical, deductive way from their supposed moral principles. Well, they don't. I'm rereading highlights from a Thomas Edsall column in the New York Times a few months ago. So in 1978, among conservatives, there was a hostile reaction to an IRS proposal to impose taxes on churches running racially segregated private schools for the children of white Southerners seeking to avoid federally mandated school integration orders. So this provided an opportunity to mobilize born-again and evangelical parishioners through the creation of the moral majority. So the moral majority wanted to find an issue that would unite a much larger constituency than just Southerners concerning, concerned about maintaining tax breaks for racially segregated private schools. So... Building, building a movement around the burning issue of defending the tax advantages of racially segregating schools is not a viable strategy on the national stage. You know, stop the tax on racial segregation is not a winning issue. So after a long and contentious debate, conservative strategists came to a consensus. They landed upon one surprising word that would supply the key to the whole political puzzle of the age, and that word is abortion. Because abortion opponents more likely to be committed to a traditional worldview. They're more likely to be committed to a traditional nuclear family. And they're more likely to see their, their families and their communities under threat from secular modern forces, particularly the elites. So at a 1990 meeting of conservatives in Washington, D.C., Paul Weirich spoke, and he said, remember, the religious right did not come together in response to Roe v. Wade. No. What got the movement going as a political movement was the attempt on the part of the Internal Revenue Service to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University. So when I went to Forest Lake Christian School in ninth grade, uh, Bob Jones University was the place where, where Christians go. And yeah, they were racially segregated. You weren't supposed to date someone outside of your race at uh, Bob Jones. And the university maintained this ban on interracial dating until 2000. So opposition to... Abortion became a convenient diversion. It was really a godsend to distract what was motivating this conservative political activism, which is essentially the defense of racial segregation in evangelical institutions. People want to be with people like them. And if being with people like you is against the law, people will find ways of getting around the law. So open racism is unfashionable. Politicians and regular people need a more high-minded issue, one that will not compel them to surrender their fundamental political orientation. So the beauty of defending a fetus is that the fetus demands nothing in return. So 
1970s saw surging rights movements for African-Americans, for gays, for, for women, for, for criminals, for the mentally ill. And that set the stage for an explosive conservative reaction in 1980, putting Ronald Reagan in office as president and resting control of the United States Senate for the next six years. So there is a persistent association between Americans' views on abortion and their views on ethno-racial exclusion. So people who are the most strongly opposed to abortion tend to be people who prefer to stay with their own kind. So racial animosity towards outgroups and abortion attitudes are related, though mainly in an indirect way, but they come together in an eversion towards intellectual elites. So the people who push the government's role in civil rights legislation and equal opportunity laws and racial integration laws, right? these are the same people who push permissive abortion laws, talking about highly educated people from the northeast, from, from the big cities. So the public policy domain may differ, but the hated people are the same. So it's not so much religiosity driving these attitudes, but the shifting political landscape in which Republicans are increasingly associated with a religious perspective on life and cultural conservatism to a greater degree than Democrats has changed partisans' involvement with their religious community. So people are self-selecting into communities in large part based on their political outlooks. People want to be in homogeneous communities. They want to be with people who look at the world similarly to how they do. So churches are no increasingly less often places where people come together with different political viewpoints, right? Communities, religious communities are more and more echo chambers populated by like-minded partisans. So there are many dimensions to the issue of abortion. There is a, a genuine concern about Christian morality. Then there is the politicization of the issue to rile up the electorate. So this is less about policy, more about voter harvesting. And then there is the deep resonance of state and regional sovereignty. So regional politics is frequently defined by a resistance to federal authority. So if the federal government gets to run every aspect of regional cultural politics, then it can run everything. So people want autonomy. They want to develop their own way of life without the big federal government uh, just taking over and dominating everything. General, thanks so much for coming on. So what is the state of abortion law in Missouri now? Yeah, Missouri became the first state after the decision, the Dobbs decision day, to effectively end abortion. And this is something that's been worked on for decades. People have prayed upon this. It's a long time coming. Thankfully, President Trump appointed three conservative justices that knew that the Roe decision, as Justice Alito said, the day it was issued was on a collision course with the Constitution. And we see that here today now. And so this issue will be decided, as it should have been 49 years ago, uh, to the states. Missouri, interestingly, in 1825, was the first state to formally prohibit. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So I think another thing that's going on here is that we are seeing the naked state. And I'm working off a chapter in a book published by Stephen Turner last year. And th this uh, essay is called The Naked State. So there's this Marxist philosopher recently shocked the world, meaning recent in, in 2020, 2021, by saying that the COVID epidemic has caused to appear with clarity the state of exception, right, to which governments have habituated us for some time 
that this is truly the normal condition. So it says a society that lives in a perennial state of emergency cannot be a free society. And he notes that Westerners are now disposed to sacrifice practically everything, the normal conditions of life, social relationships, work, friendship, affection, practicing your religion, political convictions, all to try to reduce the dangers of getting sick. So the basic raw material of life has been sacrificed to reduce the odds of getting sick. Now, the critics to these assertions said that, well, look, we need to trust in experts and, and philosophers like Giorgio Agamben should, uh, should not do anything to undermine the authority of experts. And overwhelmingly again and again and again, don't trust the experts. And I find myself right in the middle. I don't say trust the experts. I don't say automatically distrust the experts. Sometimes the experts are right. Sometimes the populists are right. Sometimes the people are right. Sometimes the elite are right. So the so-called moderate columnist, the New York Times, David Brooks, is very explicit about this message he wrote in 2020. Aside from a few protesters and a depraved President Trump, most of us have understood we need to suspend the old individualist American creed. In the midst of a complex epidemiological disaster, to be anti-authority is to be ignorant. So for David Brooks, suspending the American creed of individualism is not a temporary event. It is a watershed. This suspension of the American creed is meant to be permanent. Now, I am for moving America a little bit away from individualism towards vouch nationalism, where a whole bunch of privileges such as owning a gun or having children or even driving a car are facilitated by getting people law-abiding citizens to vouch for you and if you can't get 10 law-abiding citizens to vouch for you then i think your, your access to these privileges should be a lot more rigorous so carl schmidt is the the philosopher of the state of exception and he says that uh, these states of exception are increasingly being made normal and they become familiar so that we become accustomed to them and we ignore them. And it's only in a state of crisis do they become readily apparent. And this present crisis, the COVID crisis, has brought a whole number of features in the present political order that have been hidden, but hidden in plain sight. And now they are being stuck in our faces. So one problem is the common phenomenon of expert failure. I think experts overall have done a better than average job with regard to COVID, but there have been numerous and explicit and profound examples of expert failure with regard to COVID. Now, there are other problems, the structure of normal accidents of expertise. So many people claim expertise way beyond their actual expertise. There's the problem of assigning accountability to experts because they normally like to protect each other. There is the variation in national traditions in responding to expertise. So some people are much more compliant and much more willing to go along with expertise. And then there is the dependence of ordinary governance on faceless expert bureaucrats. So no advanced civilization has found a way to hold bureaucrats accountable. So in, in no advanced civilization are ordinary bureaucrats liable to being sued. They're not 
particularly liable to the executive branch and they're not liable to the legislative branch. And because bureaucrats get to enforce the law, they effectively get to write the laws. So explicitly, legislatures write laws, but then the bureaucrats come along and interpret them and effectively write write the law. And so we have a tendency in our political and historical narratives and in our news media to conceal the role of experts. We also have tendencies to cover up expert disagreement, right? We're supposed to follow the science. And if we're going to follow the science, then we can't have scientists singing off different notes. And we have the problem of authority. Will, will it be obeyed? Some people are much more willing to obey authority than others. So normally this expansion of government powers that we've seen during COVID is just another form of the wide discretion that is always employed by bureaucrats. And no one's come up with a solution for how to hold bureaucrats accountable. Because if you're going to have a first world industrialized country, you're going to have a bureaucracy. So how do you hold the bureaucracy accountable? So the two best TV series about this are from the BBC, I believe. Yes, Minister and uh, Yes, Prime Minister. So with COVID, we had explicit declarations of emergency, right? But often you have bureaucrats, you know, imposing their will on, on our life, but they don't do it under the the code of emergency. So that's why COVID is different. Things that go on all the time are being made explicit. So the moderate view of the moderate perspective on COVID is this is a crisis and this crisis demands the suspension of ordinary life. And we need to give up our rights and we need to obey authority rather than normal legal and political procedures, right? Authority needs to be obeyed. And this should not be subject to debate, to debate whether authority should be obeyed, whether the experts should be obeyed, is to show that you are ignorant and that you are unworthy of participating in public life. So what is normal? And who decides that the situation is not normal or a disaster? So according to David Brooks, the answer is science. Now, Thomas Hobbes, Noted, it is authority, not truth, not science, which makes the law. And I'm quite impressed that uh, Tucker Carlson has gone, gone an hour, no commercials on his show tonight. So the appeal to expertise erases the distinction between authority and truth. And with it, the whole possibility of criticism of authority on the grounds of truth. So in the age of COVID, truth and authority came to be one. To be anti-authority was not merely to be rebellious, was not to be independent, it was to be ignorant and to be a bad person. So I'm reading from this great Stephen Turner chapter on the naked state. So Carl Schmitt's account of the state of exception depends upon a distinction between the normal situation in which legal normal norms apply and make sense and abnormal situations in which you get a suspension of the legal order to preserve the legal order, right? Sometimes you have to preserve, to suspend the rules to preserve the rules. So in this moment of COVID exceptionalism, we see the naked state, the state being itself without the drapery of superficial justifications, 
without the minor sanctions that normally suffice to legitimate it. So when the police come to quell a riot, we see the naked state. When the police come to shut down a church gathering, we see the naked state. When people are not allowed to leave their homes, we see the naked state. When people are not allowed to travel to work, when people are not allowed to operate their businesses, we see the naked state. Normal rules are suspended, orders are given, they're enforced by direct physical violence, and this continues until order is restored. Taking away meaningless sex, says the chat, as a form of entertainment from he's going to rile up the rabble. There are only winners and losers in vouch nationalism, bro. Nothing in between. Well, most people are going to be winners, and only losers are going to lose. So the winners are going to win, and the losers are going to lose, and overall, we're going to be all better off with vouch nationalism. I disowned all my old friends and most family members. I couldn't survive in vouch nationalism. No, you need to make new friends, bro. You may need to make that priority. Number one is joining communities. doesn't have to be just one community. It's not just a church or a gym or a 12-step program. You need to join multiple communities and form serious, strong bonds with people. There is no good, happy, productive, efficient, effective life without bonds with other people. Look, just a suggestion. Why don't you send a link in the chat and have four or five people discuss various topics rather than just you lecturing? I think that would be more interesting. Every show, I send out links to about 20 different people, right? So no one has taken me up on it, right? It's, uh, it's not easy gathering people uh, on a show to discuss topics. So th there's a reason why all the, the distant right streamers have pretty much gone solo. So remember uh, Jean-Francois Garapi, he always had guests on his show. And I always used to have panel discussions with you know, four, six, ten people on, on at once talking about things. And that's the way it was. But for whatever reason, we all split up into a bunch of solo streamers who are not nearly... I, I agree with you. It'd be a much better show as a panel discussion. So there, there, there's some flaw in me that I've not been able to sustain panel discussions. And there are probably flaws in other people that they haven't been able to sustain the group format. And also, many people have realized that sharing your views and, and sharing your life online and in, in a discussion format is not in their best interests. So what is most entertaining, what is most compelling, what is most intellectually stimulating, right, is a group discussion. But for many of the participants, they have found that it's not in their best interests. So... What am I going to do? I'm going to say, oh, we need to, you know, we need to force people to come on here and uh, talk about this stuff. Let's see what Tucker Carlson has to say. It's triggered a new law that bans abortion, except in rare circumstances. It's now officially in effect. It's been on the books for a while. We should also point out, by the way, just in point of fact, however you feel about abortion, whether you're for legal abortion or not, Having children is the most profoundly rewarding act that most human beings experience. Ask anybody who has one. 
doesn't mean you need to have kids, but ask anyone who has kids. Is there anything in your life more rewarding than that, more meaningful, more profound? Anyone who's trying to prevent you from doing that, probably not looking out for your happiness. Well, today, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley called on the Biden administration to declare a public health emergency over abortion rights. We don't have enough abortion in this country. Now, that public health emergency, you should know, would have nothing to do with the children who are getting aborted. New scientific evidence shows that abortion doesn't simply kill unborn children. It also tortures them. They suffer. That's real. We know it. It's science. In May of 2013, a biologist at the University of Utah testified before Congress that, quote, there is universal agreement in the scientific community that an unborn child experiences fetal pain by at least 20 weeks old, end quote. Is there evidence that's not true? No, it is true. More recent studies show that unborn children, in fact, feel pain even earlier than that. At 18 weeks of gestation, stress hormones dramatically rise in children where needles are used to draw their blood in utero. Dr. Marty McCary is at Johns Hopkins University of Public Health. He joins us tonight. Doctor, thanks so much for coming on. It'd be interesting to kind of take the politics out of it, Roe v. Way out of it, whether it should be legal or not out of it. Just to the science of it, we know that children in utero, fetuses, whatever you call them, the developing human being in utero feels pain, correct? That's right, Tucker. Somewhere between 15 and 20 weeks, babies will actually resist the instruments of abortion. Now, Roe is based on viability, but viability has been changing. Babies survive now at approximately the halfway point of pregnancy. At 21 and 22 weeks, um, babies have survived outside the womb. So ironically, we sometimes do fetal surgery on a baby inside the womb of the mother to save the baby's life. And yet at the same age, in other settings, surgical instruments are used to abort a baby. So it, there's a great irony, and now you can barely talk about it. I witnessed it as a medical student. I'll tell you, it doesn't matter which side you protest on around this issue. If you see the actual images of what's happening in a baby resisting an abortion, it'll weigh on your conscience. Yeah. But today you can barely talk about it. Nurses can get fired if they don't participate. Students are ridiculed. Most of the professional medical associations have taken a, a political stand now supporting abortion right up until the third trimester. It's beyond belief, and it does nothing to restore confidence in the medical profession. No offense to physicians like yourself, but it, 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 it doesn't, I must say. Dr. Marty McCary. And uh, the chat says, I find it, I find making new friends and creating bonds is very hard if you are truthful in your beliefs, but it's easier if you can fake it, which would undermine vouch the vouch system. No, you should be necessarily leading with your beliefs. You should be getting into reality and reading what people can handle. So there are some of my beliefs that I can share with some people. And then there are other of my beliefs that I can only share with a very different crowd. You don't just share your beliefs with anyone. And human, human connection should probably not start with, with hot button issues unless you have good reason to believe that you're on the same page with someone else. So just uh, saying hello to a stranger as you walk down the street is you know, better than, than no connection. Saying hello to a stranger in an elevator is better than no connection. Talking about the football game or the baseball game or the basketball game with a stranger is better than not talking to someone at all, generally speaking, because these, these very minor forms of connection can make us feel better, make us feel more energized, and they can create a basis for deeper connection later on. So human connection is probably the one activity you should not try to make more efficient. Right, to bond with people, you have to be prepared to spend some downtime. You have to be prepared to spend time that's not always the most stimulating. It's not always exciting. 
where you don't necessarily align on every hot button issue. So back to this great Stephen Turner essay. So when police come to quell a riot, we see the naked state. Normal rules are suspended. Orders are given and enforced by direct physical violence. And this continues until order is restored. But this suspension of the rules tells us about the normal. The normal is the absence of a riot. But the possibility of riot is always present, not always preventable by the mid-continued operation of the normal rules. So by seeing who acts and how others act in response in a crisis, we can see what powers people actually possess, whether these powers are latent or unused in normal situations. So states, elites, professions, everybody tends to try to use crises to expand their power, their prestige, and their earning. Now, most people find this message disturbing because they really want to believe that doctors only have our best interests at heart, the government bureaucrats only have our best interests at heart, the politicians only have our best interests at heart, that our elite only have our best interests at heart. Now, I don't believe that our elite uniformly, universally want to destroy us, right? I, I think our elite is just as complicated as I am and as you are and as regular people are. But I, I don't I neither dismiss nor nor deny their, their propensity for, for being flawed. What I do know is that people want to increase their power, right? That is just built into human evolution. People want to increase their prestige, their status, and their opportunities to exercise power over other people and to make money. So bureaucrats typically want to expand their power. They want more and more discretion when they're responding to novel situations. When they, whoa, what's going on here with, this is the first ad on uh, tonight's uh, Tucker Carlson show. So he went, uh, went a long time without any advertising. I was watching a good video on how will the war in Ukraine end. And this professor, Andrew Latham, makes the point it's not going to end, obviously, in a Ukraine victory. And it's not going to end in Russia getting everything at once. It's going to end in a negotiated settlement that will be overwhelmingly in Russia's favor. So that makes sense to me. It's not going to end with a Ukrainian victory. It's not going to end with a clear-cut Russian victory. It's going to end in a settlement that will be overwhelmingly according to what Russia wants, because Russia has more invested. Thank you for that uh, warm welcome and very gracious introduction. The topic today really will be how this war between Russia and Ukraine is going to end. Not how we might wish it would end, not a moral case for it ending this way or that way, but a sort of cold-eyed realist take on what the most likely outcome will be. Now, I always preface talks like this by saying that all wars end in one of two ways. Either there is a decisive battlefield victory, which results in a decisive victory at the negotiating table, or there's some sort of negotiated settlement, typically the result of a mutually hurting stalemate, a situation in which neither of the protagonists uh, feel that they are likely to prevail on the battlefield and the costs of prolonging the conflict are rising and they're becoming unsustainable. And when both sides get to that point, uh, then you have the, the circumstances, the conditions are ripe for some kind of negotiated settlement. Now, I should say at the outset that we're not there yet in Ukraine. 
both sides continue to harbor delusions, perhaps, that uh, one more push is likely to result in some kind of victory. So this talk was given June 15th. Or on the Ukrainian side, just a few more of this kind of weapon or that kind of weapon from NATO, the United States, and they're likely to prevail on the battlefield. There's also some, in both cases, some internecine political dynamics, which make it difficult for either Vladimir Putin or Volodymyr Zelensky to, at this point, enter into good faith negotiations. So that's almost parenthetical, but the basic takeaway at the opening uh, needs to be that we're either looking at some kind of decisive victory on the battlefield for one side or the other, which I think is unlikely for reasons I'll talk about, or we are inching our way towards a negotiated settlement based on this condition of mutually hurting stalemate. Now, I just said, I think that neither side is likely to win a decisive battlefield victory. And I feel obliged at this point to mention the uh, one of Clausewitz's famous dicta. There are innumerable, of course, but we always have to make allowances for the play of chance, as he called it, which is another way of saying one just doesn't know. There might, in fact, be some miracle weapon delivered to the Ukrainians, which changes the battlefield correlation of forces decisively in their favor. There may be some collapse of morale on the part of the Ukrainian military. Anything, almost anything could happen, which will sway that. But if we can bracket those imponderables out for a moment and simply look at the battlefield circumstances, I think we can begin to, as I did in the piece for the Hill, eliminate certain impossible outcomes. And the first of those is the outcome of decisive Russian victory. We saw uh, four months ago now that this was the assumption on the part of the Russians and on the part of many observers in the West that this special military operation, in quotation marks, would be over in 48, 72, 96 hours, and that Ukraine would be reduced to some sort of vassal state of some reanimated Russian empire that the Russians would engage in a thunder run towards Kyiv and perhaps a few other major cities. And as was the case in 2014 with Crimea, that Ukrainian resistance would collapse. Russia would be in a position to dictate the political outcome of the conflict at a minimum cost to itself. And that preferred Russian outcome, a lot of the discussions of Russian imperialism and Putin being ill and all of that on the side, I have no need of those abstractions to make sense of what's going on. If I look at the record over the last, just since 2014, maybe 2012, maybe 2004 at the earliest, I can see that the Russians' maximalist preferred outcome, kind of perfect outcome on February 24th, would have been a quick and decisive battlefield victory at extremely low cost, negligible cost, in fact, that would result in the following. Donbass, would be rendered ungovernable from Kyiv, that Crimea would be quote-unquote restored to Russia, that the rump Ukrainian state would be in fact reduced to a kind of vassalage. It certainly would be neutralized in that it would not be drawn into the geoeconomic orbit of the European Union or the geopolitical orbit of NATO in any formal way. So it would be reconstituted as a kind of buffer state within a revived um, sphere of influence around Russia's periphery. Now that was, in my judgment, based on watching this since, since 2014, that's what I think the Russians really wanted to achieve. They're not going to achieve all of that. They are not going to reduce Ukraine to a vassal state. It's not gonna be reincorporated into some formal or informal Russian empire, at least not along those lines. It certainly is not going to be disarmed at this point by the Russian military. So. For reasons we can talk about perhaps a little later, I just don't see it within the realm of possibility that Russia's maximalist objectives on February 24th of this year 
will be realized either at the negotiating table or even on the battlefield. So that's the first impossible outcome that I think we can take off the table. The second impossible outcome that we can take off the table is a decisive Ukrainian victory on the battlefield, translating into a decisive Ukrainian victory at the negotiating table. It's simply not going to happen, notwithstanding all the, I'm going to use the word euphoria, that many observers in the West experienced a week or so after the invasion on February 24th, when it seemed as if the Russian military was being handed its hat that was being decisively defeated, that it had proven to be a paper tiger, um, and that uh, the Ukrainian military was going to liberate not just the territories that Russia grabbed in the opening days and week or so of its invasion, but was going to liberate all of Donbass. It was going to liberate all of Crimea, and it was going to restore Ukrainian sovereignty to the Ukrainian borders that existed and that are still internationally recognized in 2013, let's say. Okay, that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a clear-cut, decisive Russian victory. There's not going to be a clear-cut, decisive Ukrainian victory. There's going to be a settlement that will be heavily in Russia's favor. All right. Is liberal democracy our only choice? Here is a debate between Francis Fukuyama and John Gray. government you would rather live under. For all your criticisms, liberalism, it is, it is nice to have a free press and free elections. And I mean, Singapore is very clean, but also... You, you know, you could get fined for jaywalking. It depends on who you. Uh, it depends on who you are. If would you prefer, if you were living in Detroit, would you prefer Detroit or Singapore? Now you've got free speech in Detroit. If you're not one of the hundreds of thousands, I think now of deaths of despair in mm. the colossal opioid um, um, ep- epidemic there. People don't only want free speech. Very important. I've lived by it, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to attack it. Um, uh, I think it's a, it's a great thing. But there's no one single ideal type of government. For the rest of the life of everyone in this room, I think there will be slightly tattered liberal democracies. There'll be illiberal democracies. There'll be autocracies. There'll be theocracies. Um, there'll be ethnic nationalist states. There'll be civic nationalist states, and there'll be parts of the world where there's no state at all, just zones of anarchy. That's what will be for every single person in this room, in in, in my view. Uh, There might be slightly more liberal democracies or slightly fewer, but there won't be a universal or even anywhere near a universal liberal democracy because it's been 30-odd years since this prophecy or prediction or whatever. Yeah, there's this misconception that the world is just inevitably becoming more and more liberal and democratic, and it's not true. The world has steadily become less democratic over the last 15 years. It was. Frank didn't predict that there'd be no major conflict. He never did. But he did think that there was no sustainable alternative uh, to liberalism. Well, um, some regimes are so abominable that no one wants to live in them. Most are mixed. And uh, legitimacy in regimes isn't a matter of fitting any theory like liberalism or, or Marxism or some other theory. It's a complicated thing to do with peace, prosperity, security, having rulers you can halfway trust or at least not 100% mistrust, um, who somehow reflect your values. It's a very complicated thing and, it all, and shifting all the time. And so that's, as it were, um, um, my, my answer to you. So I, I agree with you basically that you'll have all these different kinds of regimes in the world and it may not be the case that the liberal ones will necessarily be dominant. But there's one fact that I think is indicative of which is the best regime. And that's, the, that's kind of the question uh, that was posed that you skipped over. Uh, and I think people are voting with their feet 
right? There are hundreds of thousands of people every single year that escape from chaotic, uh, poor, you know, badly governed places. And where do they choose to go? Do they go to Russia? Do they go to China? Do they go to North Korea? No, they go to liberal societies because I think that everybody has this perception that they want to live, if they had the opportunity, they want to live in a law-governed, you know, stable country that is well-to-do, gives their children opportunities, education, for education, for, you know, socially advancing themselves. And so I think people are voting with their feet. Okay, here they are on Russia and the end of history. You know, a very rare achievement, which is that all of this conversation is happening in the shadow of your work and your thinking. And The End of History is an often misquoted, misremembered book. Can you refresh on what you were actually arguing? Because <laughs> it's The End of History with a capital H, right, uh -huh, which is very uh -huh. important. But what was the central thesis of that book? Yes, well, let's see if I can think of that argument. Uh, I, I usually get asked it once or twice a day for the last 30 years. So That is the price I've of success, of, I'm afraid. Yeah, I have a lot of practice. Well, uh, first of all, I would... I would explain what the end of history, those words mean. So history is history with a capital H. Today we would call it something like modernization or development. Uh, that is to say the slow evolution of human social organization over the millennia. As you go from hunter-gatherer societies to tribal societies to, I don't know, feudalism to you know, an industrial society and then wherever we are today, uh, that's history. And then the end is not a stopping, it is the direction that that progress is uh, pointing us towards. And um, there was a, well, Karl Marx had a, you know, he bought into the idea that there was history in this progressive sense, and he also talked about an end of history. For him, the end of history would be communism, because that was the highest form of human uh, organization that resolved all of the contradictions of prior uh, forms. And my observation back in 1989 was we weren't going to get there. We weren't going to get to this higher stage that we could get to liberal democracy connected to a market economy, but it wasn't clear that there was another stage in social evolution higher than that, better than that, and that that's you know, where we would uh, end up. Uh, I did not predict that everybody would end up being a peaceful you know, democracy, but I said that there is this larger process, you know, call it modernization, that is valuable. You know, people don't want to live in poor, chaotic, less developed countries. They want to live in you know, Switzerland or Canada or, you know, Britain uh, that uh, has a high level of wealth where you can uh, uh, you can educate your children. You don't have to worry about your physical security the way you do in many uh, poor societies. And you know that's really what the meaning of the end of history was. Which then leads me on to the question of what and the type of government you have is a reflection of the people. All right, it's not just you, you can bring down this set of constitutional principles and you know just just bestow the wonders of liberal democracy and then all groups will just flourish right different people have different genetic and learned responses to stimuli so for example in northeast asia where conditions are much harsher people evolved to get along with each other because you need much more collective action to survive in the face of such a a difficult and demanding environment. In Africa, food is fairly easily and freely available year-round, while in Northeast Asia and in Northern Europe, people had to plan on how to survive winter. So the governments that people have developed reflect the, the genetic and learned and, and cultural and environmental responses that the people have developed to a particular time and place. And you can't just take 
a form of government that works really well for one people and expect it will have the same results for a different people. Why didn't that happen to Russia after the end of the Cold War? Why didn't it become a liberal democracy? Well, I do think that there are, uh, you know, cultural traditions that can get in the way. I mean, so many factors. Uh, one of them was uh, just bad policy. And I really do think that a lot of the, especially the American economic advisors that were uh, talking to uh, Russian policymakers after the Soviet Union fell apart gave them bad advice. They made a much too rapid transition to a market economy. Oh, if they'd just been given good advice, Russia, which has no history of prosperity, which has a very small record of, of accomplishment, generally speaking, that uh, somehow if they'd just been given better advice by Harvard economists, then they would have just flourished? No. Russia's problems are primarily a reflection of the Russian people. Right? It's not that Harvard free market economists just went over to this flourishing state and wrecked it. No. Russians are responsible for their own country and their own problems, just like Jews are responsible for their own problems and their own successes, and the Japanese are responsible overwhelmingly for their own problems and their own successes. They didn't have the, and it was based on a really fundamental misunderstanding. They didn't understand you need a state in order to have a market economy, a functioning state, and the, you know, the Soviet Union had just dismantled its state, and so that was part of it. I think that, you know, just the shock of losing an empire that rapidly. Uh, was deeply traumatizing to a lot of people. That's not the reason that, that Russia is such you know, a backward place. It's not the, the trauma of losing an empire. It's not because I got bad advice from free market economists. Come on, man. It uh, shouldn't have been because I, I, I believe there's a country in this neighborhood that lost an empire at some point. in the. This is like the Russian version of Wakanda. So that uh, you know, Russia used to be this amazing place where they had space rockets and you know, the latest and greatest technology, and then these free market Harvard economists came over and just spoiled things. Not too distant past, and it didn't go into this big revanchist, you know, effort to reconquer lost territories. But I do think that there is a tradition in Russian national identity that... No, what I'm saying is not biological determinism. It is biology combined with culture, combined with the particular practices of a particular people, Right, it's all these things interacting on each other. Understood its own identity in terms of the domination of its region, and that simply just didn't go away. Uh, and then, you know, I think uh, part of it is just the luck of particular leaders. And I think we've got a lunatic running this country right now, who is just fixated on that what he regards as. And it's not the luck of particular leaders. Guess what? Leaders don't matter that much. All right. I'm a structural realist. It's the structure of civilizations. It's the structure of communities. It's the structure of businesses. It's the structure of synagogues and churches, right, that accounts for whether these things flourish or fail. Right? Leadership makes a modest difference. Right? America is not the most powerful nation on earth because it's just had these amazing leaders. I mean, you just have to listen to the House of Commons debates in the United Kingdom and you see that British politicians, on average, are probably 15 to 20 IQ points smarter than American ones. But, uh, but Britain is essentially a vassal of the United States. You know, Britain can't do anything significant without American approval. It's a historical uh, injustice, but 
you could have imagined other outcomes. You know, Boris Yeltsin could have appointed somebody other than, you know, a KGB agent to be the next president of Russia, and we may have been on a very different path. Oh, yeah, very different path. If they just had, you know, a wiser, smarter leader, they wouldn't have the problems they have today. That, that's nonsense. If Putin drops dead today, the, the next leader of Russia will pursue policies very similar to the policies that Putin has pursued over the past 20 years. There's a great error, actually, an extremely dangerous error being unfolding at the moment, which is to say that um, Putin is mad. Now, he may, be solid, he may be isolated. He shows many of the characteristics of isolation. There may be people not telling him the bad news. That might be why he'll see scapegoats for the failure. He'll, he'll sack a lot of his people. And the chat says leaders matter. Yes, leaders matter moderately and modestly. And in certain situations, leaders matter a great deal. But as far as the overall wealth and power of a nation, the, the effect is mild to, to moderate. So that's why Tom Wolf said when he looks at American politics, he, he doesn't find it particularly interesting because American politics is just a train debt going down a track. And people on the right side of the track have their complaints and people on the left side of the track have their complaints. But the train's just going to keep going down the track. Now, in other situations, a leader may matter a great deal. But look at the mediocrity of, of our leaders and look at the strength and power of, of America. Already has military and, and intelligence. But when one says that, one is making the, the, the classic error of liberals, which is to say that underneath all human beings are rational in the sense that liberals understand rationality. What they really want is freedom, peace, prosperity. Or as I think Wolfowitz said about Iraq, he said, Two years from now, they'll all be sitting reading the Wall Street Journal and checking their stock prices. <laughs> Didn't happen. Um, and not only because of American um, um, mis mistakes. Uh, this can lead to ca catastrophe because it leaves out the possibility of that uh, um, a ruler like Putin with goals, uh, goals about reviving uh, Russia in its czarist or, or perhaps its Soviet form, uh, unifying it, uh, having it as not be as a, a kind of a world historical uh, force in the world, um, um, in, in, in human affairs, there is goals. And we leave out the possibility, which has been many times exhibited in history, that people will put as human beings, leaders, and even some of their followers, will put away, put on one side these liberal goals, but apply um, 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 some other goals instead. I think he is rational. He's been preparing this for a long time. Um, he's um, turned the economy into a fortress. It's in, people say it's in free fall now. Well, they can probably still feed themselves because 80% of their food is domestically produced. Um, it'll be other parts of the world, the developing world, that face shortages and, and, and hunger. Okay, so those are some pretty good points there by John Gray. All right, Professor Andrew Latham talks about how the war in Ukraine will end. That's not going to happen. The Ukrainian military is not strong enough today to defeat the Russians in Donbass. It is not strong enough to defeat the Russians and expel them from Ukraine. We should not expect. When you say that America is so strong because it already has a complex economy of strong institutions, so it's easy to continue along regardless of who your leaders are until you degrade too much. Yeah, but it has a great deal to do with the, the geography of America. It's protected by giant oceans, and it only has weak nations like Mexico and Canada abutting it. America has most of the world's rivers that are productive for economic uses of transporting goods, right? To transport something by water is about one-tenth the price of transporting it by road. And 
about one twentieth, one thirtieth, one fiftieth of the price of transporting by air. And most of the world's navigable rivers are in the United States. Also, the the temperature, climates of the United States, the the quality of the land, all these things compared combined with the productivity and talents of the people who've moved here make America essentially unassailable unless we, we screw it up in unimaginable ways. Any sort of rerun of the successful defense of Kyiv and the pushing back of the Russian army back into Belarus, for example, it's not going to happen. There are some very good structural reasons and operational planning reasons why the Russian military did so poorly in the opening phases of the war. But the Russian military now has found its footing. It is now fighting the kind of war that it is trained and equipped and ideally suited to fight, the kind of war that it has liked to fight at least since the Second World War, if not before. And having found its footing, it is now experiencing not breakthrough and dramatic successes, but significant, considerable battlefield successes around Severodonetsk, for example, but elsewhere as well. The Ukrainians, barring some miracle, and by that I mean acquiring and then becoming proficient in the use of some miracle weapon from the West, is simply not going to be in a position to defeat in detail and expel the Russians. It's not even going to be in a position to raise the costs of the conflict in the short to medium term to the point where Russia simply says, you know what, we really would like to win this, but it's just not worth it. So now I've taken two possible once upon a time, plausible outcomes off the table, decisive Russian victory and decisive Ukrainian victory. And by decisive, I mean achieving their maximalist goals at acceptable, reasonable costs. And that leaves us, I argued in the Hill piece, and I'll argue again, with really only one possible outcome, a negotiated settlement. And a negotiated settlement, which on balance strongly favors the Russians. Now, we're not there yet, as I indicated in my opening remarks. We are not at the point where Kyiv and Moscow are experiencing this as a mutually hurting stalemate. It's mutually hurting, all right. But the back and forth on the battlefield and the prospects on the Ukrainian side of some miracle intervention on the part of the West and the prospects on the Russian side of prevailing in this kind of grinding, artillery-predominant war that they are best suited to, the costs to both parties have not yet risen to the point where they think that it's too high. And the prospects of ultimate victory do not seem to have entirely evaporated. Although having said that, one can detect a kind of vibe shift on the part of the Ukrainian leadership and on the part of many of its heretofore almost unquestioning supporters in the West. Okay, let's get something from John Mearsheimer here. Putin's July 12th, 2021 essay, his famous essay, that he understands that Ukrainian nationalism is a powerful force and that the civil war in the Donbass... And this is from June 16. ...which had been going on since 2014 had done much to poison relations between Russia and Ukraine. He surely knew that Russia's invasion force would not be welcomed with open arms by Ukrainians and that it would be a Herculean task for Russia to subjugate Ukraine if it had the necessary forces to conquer the entire country, which it did not have. Finally, it's worth noting that hardly anyone made the argument that Putin had imperial ambitions from the time he first took office in 2000 until the Ukraine crisis first broke out on February 22, 2014. That's 14 years 
Nobody made the argument that he had imperial ambitions in his first 14 years in office. In fact, the Russian leader was an invited guest to the April 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, where the alliance announced that Ukraine and Georgia would eventually become members. He was invited to be there. Putin's opposition to that announcement had hardly any effect on Washington because Russia was judged to be too weak to stop further enlargement, just as it had been too weak to stop the 1990 tranche of enlargement, and just as it had been too weak to stop the 2004 tranche of expansion. Relatedly, it's important to note that NATO expansion before 2014, before the February 2014 crisis, was not aimed at containing Russia. Given the sad state of Russian military power, Moscow was in no position to pursue revanchist policies in Eastern Europe. Tellingly, former U.S. Ambassador to Moscow Michael McFaul notes that Putin's seizure of Crimea, that was in February 22nd, after the February 22nd, 2014 crisis started, was not planned before the crisis, but was an impulsive move in response to the coup that overthrew Ukraine's pro-Russian leader. In short, NATO enlargement was not intended to contain a Russian threat, but was intended instead as part of a broader policy to spread the liberal international order into Eastern Europe and make the entire continent look like Western Europe. It was only when the Ukraine crisis broke out in February 2014 that the United States and its allies suddenly began describing Putin as a dangerous leader with imperial ambitions and Russia as a serious military threat that had to be contained. What happened? This new rhetoric was designed to serve one simple purpose, to allow the West to blame Putin for the outbreak of trouble in Ukraine. And now that the crisis has turned into a full-scale war, it is imperative to make sure that he alone is blamed for this disastrous turn of events. This blame game explains why Putin is widely viewed as an imperialist here in the West, even though there is hardly any evidence to support that perspective. Let me now turn to the real cause of the Ukraine crisis and ultimately the Ukraine war. The taproot is the American-led effort to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. That strategy has three prongs. One, integrating Ukraine into the EU. Two, turning Ukraine into a pro-Western liberal democracy. You all know about the Orange Revolution. And three, and most importantly, incorporating Ukraine into NATO. The strategy was set in motion at NATO's annual summit in Bucharest in April 2008, when the alliance announced that Ukraine and Georgia will become members. That's in quotes, will become members. Russian leaders responded immediately with outrage, making it clear that this decision was an existential threat to Russia, and they had no intention of letting either country join NATO. According to a respected Russian, Russian journalist, Putin, quote, flew into a rage and warned that if Ukraine joins NATO, it will do so without Crimea and the eastern regions. It will simply fall apart. That's Putin talking in 2008. William Burns, who is now the head of the CIA, 
was then the U.S. ambassador to Moscow. This is at the time of the Bucharest summit. He wrote a memo to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice that succinctly describes Russian thinking about Ukraine joining NATO. You want to pay very careful attention to what Burns said and then what I'm going to tell you Angela Merkel has recently said. This is Burns. This is his memo. He's the U.S. ambassador in Moscow. It's his memo to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Quote, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players, from knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. NATO, he said, would be seen as throwing down the strategic gauntlet. Today's Russia will respond. Russian-Ukrainian relations will go into a deep freeze. It will create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Burns, of course, was not the only policymaker who understood that bringing Ukraine into NATO was fraught with danger. Indeed, at the Bucharest summit, at the summit itself, both German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Nicolas Sarkozy were opposed to moving forward on NATO membership for So if uh, France and Germany were opposed to moving NATO membership to Eastern Europe, why did it happen? Because NATO simply does what the United States wants, right? The other members of NATO don't matter very much, not even so-called powerful nations like France and Germany, right? The United States overwhelmingly pays the bills, has the military that constitutes the, the prime deterrence of NATO, and so these other nations, including the powerful states of Germany and France, in the end, they have to just go along with whatever the United States wants to Ukraine, do. Because they feared it would infuriate Russia. Angela Merkel recently explained her opposition in an interview. I would, this, I'm quoting Angela Merkel. I was very sure that Putin is not going to let this happen. From his perspective, that would be a declaration of war. Think about what Merkel, who opposed it in April 2008, is saying. She's saying that she knew that Putin would interpret it as a declaration of war. In other words, putting Ukraine in NATO would be a declaration of war. And Burns has just told you that Putin's not an anomaly, that every Russian member of the foreign policy elite, including the knuckle-draggers in the recesses of the Kremlin that he has talked to, view it just as Putin views it. The Bush administration, which was pushing this policy decision for NATO, however, cared little about Moscow's brightest of red lines and pressured the French and German leaders to agree to issuing a public pronouncement that said unequivocally that Ukraine and Georgia would eventually join the alliance. Right, we've had really bad leadership for since George H.W. Bush, and yet we're still the most powerful nation on Earth. So got to hear from an academic friend who's about the smartest person I know, shared with him that New York Times article which says that uh, anti-abortion is, is largely a proxy for racism. And he says, well, this article is pretty one-sided. The, the feminists have used Roe v. Wade as a fundraising gimmick for decades, mostly by being hardline 
not willing to acknowledge that there's any issue with abortion. And what normal person, once he realizes how much pain the fetus suffers when it's being aborted, is indifferent to that. So it is just this attitude shared by the educated elites that pisses people off, right? People don't want to be pushed around. They don't want to be pushed around on race. They don't want to be pushed around on sex. They don't want to be pushed around. So racial resentment is just a term that the news media and the elites use for people who don't like special treatment for certain racial groups, right? It's called racial resentment when people resent the game being rigged, when people resent affirmative action, when people resent that uh, people are not being treated equally in the eyes of the law, that uh, certain groups are being held sacred and therefore can't be held accountable. People resent that, right? They, they resent racial favoritism, and then that resentment of racism, that resentment of racial favoritism is called white rage, white anger, racial resentment. Right? These issues are correlated, but, but saying it's just about race is just plucking one variable out of the mix. Ordinary people don't want to be pushed around by the elites, by the establishment, by the media, by the academy, by politicians, and, and forced to change their traditional ways of life. Now, one interesting thing in this dispute is the effects of abortion. So there is a controversial claim that uh, widespread availability of abortion has been the source of a significant drop in crime. The thinking is that unwanted black kids cause crime, that most unwanted kids in America are black. That's the thinking. And so many people, such as Margaret Sanger, held the view that abortion is good because it reduces the number of black people. But this doesn't really deal with the anti-abortion. It's just a racist idea, but it is a correlation. So the outlier is the feminist view that abortion is perfectly acceptable until birth and that people buy this, right? The reason for this is an ideological one. Most countries reject the, the free and easy access to abortion that Americans have had for 50 years. Unsurprisingly, the American-led effort to integrate Georgia into NATO resulted in a war between Georgia and Russia in August 2008, just four months after the Bucharest summit. Nevertheless, in the wake of that war, the United States and its allies continued moving forward with their plans to make Ukraine a Western bastion on Russia's borders. These efforts eventually sparked a major crisis in February of 2014 after a U.S.-supported uprising caused Ukraine's pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, to flee the country. He was replaced by pro-American Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk. In response, Russia took Crimea from Ukraine and helped fuel a civil war that broke out in the Donbass between pro-Russian separatists and the Ukrainian government. One often hears the argument, I'm sure you've all heard this, that in the eight years between when the crisis broke out in February 2014 and when the war began in February 2022. See that eight-year window there? Just to keep the big picture in your mind. August 2008, that's the Bucharest summit. But the crisis doesn't break out until February 2014. And then the war breaks out eight years later, February 2022. The argument is that in the eight years between when the crisis broke out and when the war broke out, this past February, the United States and its allies paid little attention to bringing Ukraine into NATO. In effect, the issue had been taken off the table 
and thus NATO enlargement could not possibly have been an important cause of the escalating crisis in 2021 and the subsequent outbreak of war earlier this year. This line of argument is false. In fact, the Western response to the events of 2014 was to double down on the existing strategy and effectively make Ukraine a de facto member of NATO. The alliance began training the Ukrainian military in 2014, averaging 10,000 trained troops annually over the next eight years. NATO was training 10,000 troops per year for eight straight years. In December 2017, the Trump administration decided to provide Kyiv with defensive weapons. Other, NATO's, other NATO countries quickly got into the act, shipping even more weapons to Ukraine. In addition, Ukraine's military participated in joint military exercises with NATO forces. In July 2021, less than a year ago, Kyiv and Washington, Kyiv and Washington co-hosted Operation Seabreeze, a naval exercise in the Black Sea that included navies from 31 countries and was directly aimed at Russia. Two months later, in September 2021, the Ukraine army led Rapid Trident 21, which was, according to an official press release from the U.S. Army, it was, quote, a U.S. Army Europe and Africa-assisted annual exercise designed to enhance interoperability among allied and partner nations. Remember, I'm making the argument here. We were turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. It was designed to enhance interoperability among allied and partner nations to demonstrate units are poised and ready to respond to any crisis. NATO's efforts to arm and train Ukraine's military explains in good part why it has fared so well against Russian forces in the ongoing war. It's not simply Russian incompetence. It's the fact that we armed and trained those Ukrainian forces and turned them into a formidable fighting force. A headline in a recent issue of the Wall Street Journal put it quite nicely. This is quoting that headline in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you see that's uh, Ethan Ralph there. He's out there live streaming, and, and I see him on uh, Fox News. I have to agree. I know Stephen was there as well. But time and time and again, when it came to Mexico City policy, when it came to protecting the sanctity of life, and I just want to say this to America. Remember, for most of his adult life, this Manhattan male billionaire, real estate developer, had been pro-choice. He changed his mind over a series of years and a series of experiences. That's very typical in our country. People do change their minds. And I think today the opinion was the culmination of that as well. You see public opinion, religion and morality certainly grip some people, but science and medicine have made so many people stop and think, including Sean, 47 of the 50 countries in Europe have restrictions before 15 weeks. Why is 15 weeks important? That's the Dobbs measure, 15 weeks gestation. You know, a majority of Americans agree with not having abortion starting in the second trimester. Everybody's polls show that. Even if you agree with it at and uh, looking at the chat, uh, eugenics is no good, says Dan. Well, if you are selective with whom you have children, right? if you're selective with your partner choice, then you are practicing eugenics. Now, you probably mean that uh, state-driven coercive eugenic policies is bad. But any kind of care that you exercise in deciding who you're going to marry and who you're going to make babies with, right? you're practicing eugenics. All right, that's it. Take care. Bye-bye.